This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Chapter 5, Part 4. Section 5.5. Taking a view of the different works which have been written on education, Lord Chesterfield's letters must not be silently passed over. Not that I mean to analyze his unmanly, immoral system, or even to cull any of the useful shrewd remarks which occur in his frivolous correspondence. No, I only mean to make a few reflections on the avowed tendency of them, the art of acquiring an early knowledge of the world. An art, I will venture to assert, that preys secretly, like the worm in the bud, on the expanding powers, and turns to poison the generous juices which should mount with vigour in the youthful frame, inspiring warm affections and great resolves. For everything, saith the wise man, there is reason. And who would look for the fruits of the autumn during the genial months of spring? But this is mere declamation and I mean to reason with those worldly-wise instructors who, instead of cultivating the judgment, instill prejudices, and render hard the heart that gradual experience would only have cooled. An early acquaintance with human infirmities, or what is termed knowledge of the world, is the surest way, in my opinion, to contract the heart and damp the natural youthful ardour which produces not only great talents, but great virtues. For the vain attempt to bring forth the fruit of experience, before the sapling has thrown out its leaves, only exhausts its strength, and prevents its assuming a natural form, just as the form and strength of subsiding metals are injured when the attraction of cohesion is disturbed. Tell me, you who have studied the human mind, is it not a strange way to fix principles by showing young people that they are seldom stable? And how can they be fortified by habits when they are proved to be fallacious by example? Why is the ardour of youth thus to be damped, and the luxuriancy of fancy cut to the quick? This dry caution may, it is true, guard a character from worldly mischances, but will infallibly preclude excellence in either virtue or knowledge. The stumbling-block thrown across every path by suspicion will prevent any vigorous exertions of genius or benevolence, and life will be stripped of its most alluring charm long before its calm evening, when man should retire to contemplation for comfort and support. A young man who has bred up with domestic friends, and led to store his mind with as much speculative knowledge as can be acquired by reading, and the natural reflections which youthful ebullitions of animal spirits and instinctive feelings inspire, will enter the world with warm and erroneous expectations. But this appears to be the course of nature, and in morals, as well as in works of taste, we should be observant of her sacred indications, and not presume to lead when we ought obsequiously to follow. In the world few people act from principle. Present feelings and early habits are the grand springs. But how would the former be deadened, and the latter rendered iron-corroding fetters, if the world were shown to young people just as it is, when no knowledge of mankind or their own hearts, slowly obtained by experience, rendered them forbearing? Their fellow-creatures would not then be viewed as frail beings, like themselves, condemned to struggle with human infirmities, and sometimes displaying the light and sometimes the dark side of their character, extorting alternate feelings of love and disgust, but guarded against as beasts of prey, till every enlarged social feeling, in a word, humanity, was eradicated. 
In life, on the contrary, as we gradually discover the imperfections of our nature, we discover virtues, and various circumstances attach us to our fellow-creatures, when we mix with them, and view the same objects that are never thought of in acquiring a hasty, unnatural knowledge of the world. We see a folly swell into a vice, by almost imperceptible degrees, and pity while we blame. But if the hideous monster burst suddenly on our sight, fear and disgust rendering us more severe than man ought to be, might lead us with blind zeal to usurp the character of omnipotence, and denounce damnation on our fellow-mortals, forgetting that we cannot read the heart, and that we have seeds of the same vices lurking in our own. I have already remarked that we expect more from instruction than mere instruction can produce, for instead of preparing young people to encounter the evils of life with dignity, and to acquire wisdom and virtue by the exercise of their own faculties, precepts are heaped upon precepts, and blind obedience required when conviction should be brought home to reason. Suppose, for instance, that a young person in the first ardour of friendship deifies the beloved object. What harm can arise from this mistaken enthusiastic attachment? Perhaps it is necessary for virtue first to appear in a human form to impress youthful hearts. The ideal model, which a more matured and exalted mind looks up to, and shapes for itself, would elude their sight. He who loves not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God? asks the wisest of men. It is natural for youth to adorn the first object of its affection with every good quality, and the emulation produced by ignorance, or, to speak with more propriety, by inexperience, brings forward the mind capable of forming such an affection. And when in the lapse of time perfection is found not to be within the reach of mortals, virtue abstractly is thought beautiful, and wisdom sublime. Admiration then gives space to friendship, properly so called because it is cemented by esteem, and the being walks alone, only dependent on heaven for that emulous panting after perfection which ever glows in a noble mind. But this knowledge a man must gain by the exertion of his own faculties, and this is surely the blessed fruit of disappointed hope, for he who delighteth to diffuse happiness and show mercy to the weak creatures who are learning to know him, never implanted a good propensity to be tormenting ignis fatuus. Our trees are now allowed to spread with wide luxuriance, nor do we expect by force to combine the majestic marks of time with youthful graces, but wait patiently till they have struck deep their root, and braved many a storm. Is the mind, then, which in proportion to its dignity advances more slowly toward perfection, to be treated with less respect? To argue from analogy, everything around us is in a progressive state, and when an unwelcome knowledge of life produces almost a satiety of life, and we discover by the natural course of things that all that is done under the sun is vanity, we are drawing near the awful close of the drama. The days of activity and hope are over, and the opportunities which the first stage of existence has afforded of advancing in the scale of intelligence must soon be summed up. A knowledge at this period of the futility of life, or earlier, if obtained by experience, is very useful, because it is natural. But when a frail being is shown the follies and vices of man, that he may be taught prudently to guard against the common casualties of life by sacrificing his heart, surely it is not speaking harshly to call it the wisdom of this world, contrasted with the nobler fruit of piety and experience. I will venture a paradox, and deliver my opinion without reserve. 
If men were only born to form a circle of life and death, it would be wise to take every step that foresight could suggest to render life happy. Moderation in every pursuit would then be supreme wisdom, and the prudent voluptuary might enjoy a degree of content, though he neither cultivated his understanding nor kept his heart pure. Prudence, supposing we were mortal, would be true wisdom, or to be more explicit, would procure the greatest portion of happiness, considering the whole of life, but knowledge beyond the conveniences of life would be a curse. Why should we injure our health by close study? The exalted pleasure which intellectual pursuits afford would scarcely be equivalent to the hours of languor that follow, especially if it be necessary to take into the reckoning the doubts and disappointments that cloud our researches. Vanity and vexation close every enquiry, for the cause which we particularly wish to discover flies like the horizon before us as we advance. The ignorant, on the contrary, resemble children, and suppose that if they could walk straight forward they should at last arrive where the earth and clouds meet. Yet disappointed as we are in our researches, the mind gains strength by the exercise, sufficient perhaps to comprehend the answers which, in another step of existence, it may receive to the anxious questions it asked, when the understanding with feeble wing was fluttering round the visible effects to dive into the hidden cause. The passions also, the winds of life, would be useless, if not injurious, did the substance which composes our thinking being, after we have thought in vain, only become the support of vegetable life, and invigorate a cabbage or blush in a rose. The appetites would answer every earthly purpose, and produce more moderate and permanent happiness. But the powers of the soul that are of little use here, and probably disturb our animal enjoyments, even while conscious dignity makes us glory in possessing them, prove that life is merely an education, a state of infancy, of which the only hopes worth cherishing should not be sacrificed. I mean, therefore, to infer that we ought to have a precise idea of what we wish to attain by education, for the immortality of the soul is contradicted by the actions of many people who firmly profess the belief. If you mean to secure ease and prosperity on earth as the first consideration, and leave futurity to provide for itself, you act prudently in giving your child an early insight into the weaknesses of his nature. You may not, it is true, make an inkle of him, but do not imagine that he will stick to more than the letter of the law, who has very early imbibed a mean opinion of human nature, nor will he think it necessary to rise much above the common standard. He may avoid gross vices, because honesty is the best policy, but he will never aim at attaining great virtues. The example of writers and artists will illustrate this remark. I must, therefore, venture to doubt whether what has been thought an axiom in morals may not have been a dogmatical assertion made by men who have coolly seen mankind through the medium of books, and say, in direct contradiction to them, that the regulation of the passions is not always wisdom. On the contrary, it should seem that one reason why men have superior judgment and more fortitude than women is undoubtedly this— that they give a freer scope to the grand passions, and by more frequently going astray, enlarge their minds. If then, by the exercise of their own reason, they fix on some stable principle, they have probably to thank the force of their passions, nourished by false views of life, and permitted to overleap the boundary that secures content. But if in the dawn of life we could soberly survey the scenes before us as in perspective, and see everything in its true colours, how could the passions gain sufficient strength to unfold the faculties? Let me now, as from an eminence, survey the world stripped of all its false delusive charms. 
The clear atmosphere enables me to see each object in its true point of view, while my heart is still. I am calm as the prospect, in a morning when the mists, slowly dispersing, silently unveil the beauties of nature, refreshed by rest. In what light will the world now appear? I rub my eyes and think, perchance, that I am just awaking from a lively dream. I see the sons and daughters of men pursuing shadows, and anxiously wasting their powers to feed passions which have no adequate object. If the very excess of these blind impulses, pampered by that lying yet constantly trusted guide the imagination, did not, by preparing them for some other state, render short-sighted mortals wiser without their own concurrence, or what comes to the same thing, when they were pursuing some imaginary present good. After viewing objects in this light, it would not be very fanciful to imagine that this world was a stage on which a pantomime is daily performed for the amusement of superior beings. How would they be diverted to see the ambitious man consuming himself by running after a phantom, and pursuing the bubble fame in the cannon's mouth that was to blow him to nothing? For when consciousness is lost, it matters not whether we mount in a whirlwind or descend in rain. And should they compassionately invigorate his sight, and show him the thorny path which led to eminence that like a quicksand sinks as he ascends, disappointing his hopes when almost within his grasp, would he not leave to others the honour of amusing them, and labour to secure the present moment, though from the constitution of his nature he would not find it very easy to catch the flying stream? Such slaves are we to hope and fear. But vain as the ambitious man's pursuit would be, he is often striving for something more substantial than fame. That, indeed, would be the veriest meteor, the wildest fire that could lure a man to ruin. What, renounce the most trifling gratification to be applauded when he should be no more? Wherefore this struggle, whether man is mortal or immortal, if that noble passion did not really raise the being above his fellows? And love! What diverting scenes would it produce? Pantaloon's tricks must yield to more egregious folly. To see a mortal adorn an object with imaginary charms, and then fall down and worship the idol which he himself had set up! How ridiculous! But what serious consequences ensue to rob man of that portion of happiness which the deity, by calling him into existence, has, or on what can his attributes rest, indubitably promised? Would not all the purposes of life have been much better fulfilled if he had only felt what has been termed physical love? And would not the sight of the object, not seen through the medium of the imagination, soon reduce the passion to an appetite, if reflection, the noble distinction of man, did not give it force, and make it an instrument to raise him above this earthly dross by teaching him to love the centre of all perfection, whose wisdom appears clearer and clearer in the works of nature, in proportion as reason is illuminated and exalted by contemplation, and by acquiring that love of order which the struggles of passion produce. The habit of reflection, and the knowledge attained by fostering any passion, might be shown to be equally useful, though the object might be proved equally fallacious, for they would all appear in the same light if they were not magnified by the governing passion implanted in us by the author of all good, to call forth and strengthen the faculties of each individual, and enable it to attain all the experience that an infant can obtain, who does certain things it cannot tell why. I descend from my height and mixing with my fellow-creatures, feel myself hurried along the common stream. Ambition, love, hope, and fear exert their wonted power, though we be convinced by reason that their present and most attractive promises are only lying dreams. 
but had the cold hand of circumspection damped each generous feeling before it had left any permanent character, or fixed some habit, what could be expected but selfish prudence and reason just rising above instinct? Who that has read Dean Swift's disgusting description of the yahoos, an incipient one of Wynnum's with a philosophical eye, can avoid seeing the futility of degrading the passions or making man rest in contentment? The youth should act, for had he the experience of a grey head, he would be fitter for death than life, though his virtues, rather residing in his head than his heart, could produce nothing great, and his understanding prepared for this world would not, by its noble flights, prove that it had a title to a better. Besides, it is not possible to give a young person a just view of life. He must have struggled with his own passions before he can estimate the force of the temptation which betrayed his brother into vice. Those who are entering life, and those who are departing, see the world from such very different points of view, that they can seldom think alike, unless the unfledged reason of the former never attempted a solitary flight. When we hear of some daring crime, it comes full upon us in the deepest shade of turpitude and raises indignation, but the eye that gradually saw the darkness thicken must observe it with more compassionate forbearance. The world cannot be seen by an unmoved spectator. We must mix in the throng, and feel as men feel before we can judge of their feelings. If we mean, in short, to live in the world to grow wiser and better, and not merely to enjoy the good things of life, we must attain a knowledge of others at the same time that we become acquainted with ourselves. Knowledge acquired any other way only hardens the heart, and perplexes the understanding. I may be told that the knowledge thus acquired is sometimes purchased at too dear a rate. I can only answer that I very much doubt whether any knowledge can be attained without labour and sorrow, and those who wish to spare their children both should not complain if they are neither wise nor virtuous. They only aimed at making them prudent, and prudence, early in life, is but the cautious craft of ignorant self-love. I have observed that young people, to whose education particular attention has been paid, have in general been very superficial and conceited, and far from pleasing in any respect, because they had neither the unsuspecting warmth of youth, nor the cool depth of age. I cannot help imputing this unnatural appearance principally to that hasty, premature instruction which leads them presumptuously to repeat all the crude notions they have taken upon trust, so that the careful education which they received makes them all their lives the slaves of prejudices. Mental, as well as bodily exertion, is at first irksome, so much so that the many would fain let others both work and think for them. An observation which I have often made will illustrate my meaning. When, in a circle of strangers or acquaintances, a person of moderate abilities asserts an opinion with heat, I will venture to affirm, for I have traced this fact home very often, that it is a prejudice. These echoes have a high respect for the understanding of some relation or friend, and without fully comprehending the opinions which they are so eager to retail, they maintain them with a degree of obstinacy that would surprise even the person who concocted them. I know that a kind of fashion now prevails of respecting prejudices, and when any one dares to face them, though actuated by humanity and armed by reason, he is superciliously asked whether his ancestors were fools. No, I should reply, opinions at first of every description were all probably considered, and therefore founded on some reason. Yet not unfrequently, of course, it was rather a local expedient than a fundamental principle that would be reasonable at all times. 
But moss-covered opinions assume the disproportioned form of prejudices, when they are indolently adopted only because age has given them a venerable aspect, though the reason on which they were built ceases to be a reason, or cannot be traced. Why are we to love prejudices merely because they are prejudices? A prejudice is a fond, obstinate persuasion, for which we can give no reason. For the moment a reason can be given for an opinion, it ceases to be a prejudice, though it may be an error in judgment. And are we then advised to cherish opinions only to set reason at defiance? This mode of arguing, if arguing it may be called, reminds me of what is vulgarly termed a woman's reason. For women sometimes declare that they love or believe certain things, because they love or believe them. It is impossible to converse with people to any purpose who, in this style, only use affirmatives and negatives. Before you can bring them to a point to start fairly from, you must go back to the simple principles that were antecedent to the prejudices broached by power, and it is ten to one but you are stopped by the philosophical assertion that certain principles are as practically false as they are abstractly true. Nay, it may be inferred that reason has whispered some doubts, for it generally happens that people assert their opinions with the greatest heat when they begin to waver, striving to drive out their own doubts by convincing their opponent. They grow angry when those gnawing doubts are thrown back to prey on themselves. The fact is that men expect from education what education cannot give. A sagacious parent or tutor may strengthen the body and sharpen the instruments by which the child is to gather knowledge but the honey must be the reward of the individual's own industry. It is almost as absurd to attempt to make a youth wise in the experience of another, as to expect the body to grow strong by the exercise which is only talked of or seen. Many of those children whose conduct has been most narrowly watched become the weakest men, because their instructors only instill certain notions into their minds that have no other foundation than their authority, and if they are loved or respected, the mind is cramped in its exertions and wavering in its advances. The business of education in this case is only to conduct the shooting tendrils to a proper pole. Yet after laying precept upon precept, without allowing a child to acquire judgment itself, parents expect them to act in the same manner by this borrowed fallacious light as if they had illuminated it themselves, and be, when they enter life, what their parents are at the close. They do not consider that the tree, and even the human body, does not strengthen its fibres till it has reached its full growth. There appears to be something analogous in the mind. The senses and the imagination give a form to the character during childhood and youth, and the understanding, as life advances, gives firmness to the first fair purposes of sensibility, till virtue, arising rather from the clear conviction of reason than the impulse of the heart, Morality is made to rest on a rock against which the storms of passion vainly beat. I hope I shall not be misunderstood when I say that religion will not have this condensing energy, unless it be founded on reason. If it be merely the refuge of weakness or wild fanaticism, and not a governing principle of conduct drawn from self-knowledge and a rational opinion respecting the attributes of God, what can it be expected to produce? The religion which consists in warming the affections and exalting the imagination is only the poetical part, and may afford the individual pleasure without rendering it a more moral being. It may be a substitute for worldly pursuits, yet narrow instead of enlarging the heart. But virtue must be loved as in itself sublime and excellent, and not for the advantages it procures or the evils it averts, if any great degree of excellence be expected. 
Men will not become moral when they only build airy castles in a future world to compensate for the disappointments which they meet with in this, if they turn their thoughts from relative duties to religious reveries. Most prospects in life are marred by the shuffling worldly wisdom of men, who, forgetting that they cannot serve God and mammon, endeavor to blend contradictory things. If you wish to make your son rich, pursue one course. If you are only anxious to make him virtuous, you must take another. But do not imagine that you can bound from one road to the other without losing your way. End of chapter 5